Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. Sometime in May, or maybe it was June, I had a marvelous conversation about the sky. Not just one sky, but ten skies. With the critic Erica Balsam. Balsam wrote an insightful book about the lovely, thought-provoking landscape film Ten Skies, from filmmaker James Benning. I think I originally saw the movie at a festival in the late 2000s, and it was a pleasure to revisit. Happily, I have a new occasion to make this conversation available, thanks to a screening of Ten Skies at the Open City Documentary Festival in London. But no matter the occasion, the film is a work that always rewards looking at from a number of angles, opening up questions about art and philosophy that keep shifting and turning in your head like the clouds. Balsam's book is available from Fireflies Press. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. We usually talk about what people have been watching, but it happens that I read something that's just really so interesting. I'd, I'd rather focus on a particular movie. And in that case, it is a book about Ten Skies, a James Benning film that you'll hear all about. And I'm very happy to have the author of the book, who's also a critic you've probably read, in other contexts about other movies as well. So let's welcome uh, Erica Balsam. Hello. This is, I guess, the first time we've uh, done a podcast together. Uh, so you'll notice I use a lot of clown horns, that sort of thing. Um, but it's just sort of it's just sort of for the rhythm of the podcast. Um, but in any event, I wonder if you could tell a bit about what your focus is and what your studies are, and when we'll get into the book, which is just. It's kind of how I always like uh, criticism to be, which is very protean, almost changing along with the artwork itself. Uh, but anyway, so you are, uh, you're currently a professor. Well, yes, teaching. So like in the UK system, the ranks kind of work differently. So here I'm not allowed to call myself a professor because I am not a full professor. But in fact, that is true. I do um, teach in a film studies department um, at King's College. And I guess my official title is one that I think is sort of hilarious. It's reader, um, <laughs> which I guess uh, in, in the U.S. system is like associate professor or something. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, my real job. And then, you know, writing criticism is sort of like something I do a little bit uh, on the side. But uh, recently I've been doing a little bit more of it because I've been on sabbatical for the last two years, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so working on a large exhibition project about nonfiction feminist film and video, so experimental film and documentary, mainly from the 70s to the 90s. So that will be like a big exhibition that opens at the Haus der Kultur in der Welt next year in Berlin. So I spend most of my days uh, doing that. But then, you know, it's it's really nice also to write like little bits of criticism about other other kinds of movies. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds like an ideal, uh, ideal arrangement. Uh, I am, I, I forget if I've confessed this on a podcast before, but I am a grad school dropout. Uh, <laughs> I don't blame so. you. <laughs> well, I, that makes me all the more admiring of uh, my, of my friends who have continued on the arduous path. But uh, the particular subject for us uh, is your writing on uh, Ten Skies, which I, I just also thought would be ideal subject just because, I mean, in a way we've, we've all been, uh, many of us, most of us uh, to varying extents have been indoors uh, or, uh, you, know, uh, you know, not able to experience the glories of the outside world to the same extent, um, or, you know, have, have spent a lot of time uh, outdoors or in nature because, you know, given the pandemic, that's in a way where one was freest. And uh, I myself spent a lot of time just looking at trees, uh, which <laughs> may, maybe is why I keep getting uh, assignments about trees lately. But um, Ten Skies, I, I wonder if you could tell us uh, or just tell listeners who aren't familiar with the film um, or James Benning, uh, just sort of broadly what the movie is. Uh, I mean, just the, the, the short short answer is that he's 
he's really points the camera uh, toward the sky, although at a 30 degree angle, as, as you specify, which exactly. I like. Exactly. So yeah, the film uh, is a 16 millimeter sound film from 2004, and it's about 100 minutes long. And it is exactly what the title sounds like, uh, 10 shots of 10 skies in Southern California. And each one is about 10 minutes long. So it's the length of a 400 foot um, reel of 16 millimeter film. And, you know, this makes it sound very minimal, very simple. And in some sense it is, but I think it totally misunderstands the film uh, to think that, you know, anybody could just go outside with a camera and reproduce this film. Because in fact, I think there's a, a very close attention to the composition of the shots, to the the choice of of when to shoot in the first place. If if I remember correctly, I think the shots were made over about a year and a half. Um, and you know, it's a film that asks us to look very very closely um, at what we see, but it also allows us to drift uh, quite a bit. Um, and it is, as I said, a sound film. And one very kind of crucial detail is that the sound was not recorded at the same time as the image, although it is, you know, more or less a realistic soundtrack. So you hear like traffic noises or sometimes um, other events like workers singing or talking. Uh, yeah, it's really unlike most experiences at the at the movies, I would say. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's a it's a work of, of great beauty. Uh, mm. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, not to, to like short circuit what we're about to say, but you know, it is a movie that you can uh, just sit in front of and gaze at, uh, uh, as you might gaze at a, you know, su- summer day. And at the same time, you know, especially with the sound design, as you mentioned, there are these other layers uh, going on as well. But, you know, it's it's, it's funny, I, it, it is really a shape-shifting work for me, because on the one hand, you can say, yeah, it's a simple or, or rigorous, uh, stripped-down conceit. At the same time, I also begin to think of it as a greatest hits, because... <laughs> Because in a sense, you know, it's it's like only the gorgeous establishing shots of take your pick any Western, you know, or uh, any Terrence Malick film or something like that. It's it's all of those uh, just in, in one film. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and when I watched it again, which was an experience that I also want to talk about, because obviously it's so different if you're watching it um, on film versus other methods. And it's, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty, pretty extraordinary. I, I imagined different narratives attached to particular, uh, particular shots. I mean, just to sort of dive in with, with that. I mean, uh, another thing that came to mind with it is how this is part of like a long tradition in, in art, obviously. I should say most of the stuff that I'm saying here is, is uh, kind of explained more eloquently in, in your book. My first encounter with the movie was... I guess around about when it was first making the rounds, I suppose. Um, the, the movie is dated 2004. I'm not sure I saw it that early. I think it was maybe 05 or 06 or something. Um, and so I saw it on 16 millimeter. Um, but some of the most brilliant ideas are the simplest. You, you see something, you wonder why hasn't someone already done that? Of course, from your book, you explain how other artists have done different versions of, of portraying uh, the heavens. Um, but in terms of the artistic tradition, you know, I immediately thought of Constable, mm-hmm. uh, who, who you mentioned, and also with, you know, at least a couple of shots, uh, Turner, who, you know, kind of had his film crossover moment with the um, Mike Lee movie that I seem to be in the minority in liking. Um, <laughs> but just that idea of finding drama or, or showing the drama in in the turmoil really that's constantly happening and constantly shifting into and out of peace I wonder if you could talk a bit about where it fits in in terms of past artwork that's not necessarily uh, a film yeah I mean Benning himself said that um, he thought of these skies as like found paintings and so I think there's really a sense that this is a work that's engaged with a kind of much 
longer, larger iconography of skies and heavens. Um, and I think one important thing to say is that, you know, for a very long time in the history of painting, there are lots of skies, but they're often, uh, you know, clouds are, are about transcendence often. And, and in this film, I think that's really absolutely not there. Like it's a very materialist work. And I don't mean in the experimental film sense of like film grain and, and that kind of materialism. I mean, like secular looking at the world, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely not about gazing at the heavens as any kind of, you know, metaphorical, religious spiritual thing at least in my reading i don't know um that's, that's interesting but yeah go ahead i mean one could certainly bring that to it it's it's a super open work you know um but that's at least my sense of it that you know looking at it in in relation to benning's other films there's a kind of literalism uh, you know, he's photographing clouds as clouds, not as kind of passageways to the heavens or something. And I think, um, you know, that's something that also comes up in what I see as one of the important kind of reference points art historically, which uh, are the equivalence photographs by um, Alfred Stieglitz from the 20s. And these are basically like considered to be kind of landmark series in the history of abstract photography because Stieglitz would photograph the sky and often look for different kind of cloud patterns and tonal variations um, that, you know, turn what is essentially a representational photograph, you know, of the sky into a sort of abstract um, composition. Uh, and this was something that Stieglitz wanted to do for a really long time, but it wasn't until the 20s that the sort of technology uh, caught up with him and he was able to do it because it required a kind of sensitive emulsion that could register these variations. And I think that the sort of compositional care that you find in those works and also the kind of modernist literalism of them really, to me, um, have a close relationship to the way that Benning is photographing the sky in Ten Skies. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should, <laughs> this feels a bit uh, uh, potentially like a fool's errand, but I mean, maybe we should describe a couple of, of the shots just to give a sense uh, of, of, of what he's capturing, what he's composing. Uh, I mean, one thing I admired is that you were constantly finding uh, le, le mot juste for new ways of, of, of <laughs> describing uh, things. Um, I mean, it's really hard. And actually, you know what, I sort of say this in the book, like one of the reasons that I was interested in writing about this film was because I thought it would be super challenging to write about because you really have to kind of figure out an appropriate vocabulary, you know, to deal with this almost total lack of objects. Um, you know, how many colors of blue are there? You know, so um, mm. there's really a sense that it puts a strain on the capacity to describe. And so that was one of the things that I actually took on very overtly in the book is, I mean, there are 10 chapters, each chapter deals with the sky and in some way tries to describe that sky. And, and in one of the chapters, I also sort of talk about this act of description or, you know, and, and to try and see it as a, a sort of um, a difficult but important task for, for film criticism to actually take on this labor of trying to say what it is that we see. So I don't know, it would be hard to do it off the fly right now. Um, <laughs> but you know, one maybe that um, is a little easier to describe than, than many of them, I would say is the second shot. And this is of a, for, uh, a sort of brush fire that happened um, close to CalArts where, where Benning has taught for a long time. And so um, you actually see quite a, a, a distinction here between the background of the sky and then this enormous cloud coming from the fire. And at first it looks quite beautiful, but then as the shot goes on, it starts to turn this more kind of yellowish gray. I think in the book, I call it acrid smoke. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that's a moment where the, the, the duration of the shot 
really brings you from one place to a very, very different place by the end in terms of, you know, beginning with something that's quite seductive and then gradually, at least for me, this sense of a kind of like horror and, you know, polluted disgust kind of sets in as it goes on, even though it, I mean, visually it remains totally amazing, but I think, you know, it becomes colored by a different set of feelings perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there it's like, uh, Turner plus time in a way. (laughs) Exactly. That Uh, one is definitely a very Turner out of all of them. I would say that's maybe the one that feels in terms of like the color palette closest to Turner maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You say the bulbous volumes of cloud. uh, And then I like this sooty gloom invades from below, uh, which sounds, if there was a newspaper about clouds, that could be a headline. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's it's fascinating as well because yeah it the it's that shift between you know not to use terms that are probably especially you know kind of hidebound uh, for, for for you know academic study but I mean it, it turns going from beauty to, to something that's a, a little sinister um, and then also the sense that the cloud is a sign you know because uh, clouds in the skies. I'm going to rhapsodize about clouds, but it was great is that sometimes they're just there. They're mm-hmm. nothing. Uh, but sometimes they signify something, which is whether it's a storm or in this case, it's, it's really just not clouds. Really. It's these are, it's billowing smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I find that kind of fascinating, which I think also plugs into the, the shifting between how something is, you know, abstract or, or figurative or, or, or literal. Um, and, and that's something it's actually something I would I would love to talk about if it doesn't sound too abstract, but it's a conundrum I, I ha- that I find with James Bending's films. Uh, he has another film which I love called Thirteen Lakes, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know if you, you've heard what we just said about Ten Skies, that's what it is for Thirteen Lakes, um, and another one called Railroad. Uh, the title is just R R. Although as he told me when I interviewed him, uh, he said he said it's pronounced Railroad, not like a pirate. Um, <laughs> Um, but the thing with all of these, uh, or uh, with this subset, I mean, he has, what is it, you know, uh, going on 40 years of work. Uh, this is just a sub subset of it. The thing with these three films, especially for me is what's the difference coming to this film? If you know the backstory, if you know what's happening in the off screen space, if you know the conditions of the shooting versus if you don't, which is would be for you know maybe many audiences that would see them and that's something i i've never been quite able to crack because it almost seems like it changes the nature of the art artwork um and i don't i i have never really i mean um writing about movies doesn't always deal with this fact of how the artwork changes because they're writing about movies is usually giving you that information or assuming that information as the grounds that you're proceeding on but um, which, although I, I don't know, I don't think that's the case with your book, but yeah. do, 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 do you know what I'm getting at? Like if, if you look at the, if you look at a shot too, it, yeah, it looks like, it can look just totally abstract. If you know the backstory, I mean, you probably can tell after a while that it's spoke, but you don't know what, but if you know the off screen space, you, you know, the, and, and when it was shot, then you know all about, and for some of his work, it changes it fairly radically because you become aware of some violence that's occurring. I mean, the materialist reality you're talking about, but if you don't know about it, what is the film? It's a great, great question. And I sort of um, experienced this myself with 10 skies in a way, Uh, maybe not, you know, so, so dramatically, but nonetheless, when I first saw it, I think I was much, much less attentive maybe to uh, the, I don't know, the content of the film, I guess you could call it. Um, And I really saw it as this kind of like extremely like formally precise, beautiful work that was about light and movement and time. And so I sort of begin the book by saying that and then frame the rest as my attempt to do better and actually to do justice to all the other things that are in the film which, you know, really, it does require quite a bit 
of research outside what is available from, you know, just within the film itself. But I guess I would say that, especially within the experimental film tradition, to some degree or or another, that's often the case, you know, like, um, it's very common that program notes are given out with really crucial information. And this, unlike really any other kind of area of filmmaking, is an area where it's very common for the filmmaker to be present while presenting work, especially, you know, um, when it first appears. And there's like, I think it's interesting to think about the impact that that has on the way that experimental film is talked about and received and the way that the, the maker's own understanding of the work and the maker's own discourse really kind of um, determines the way the films are spoken about and written about. And maybe that's true to a degree for like all movies, but I think experimental film is in a slightly different category, you know, or maybe just a, a more exaggerated category um, in, in relation to that question. And I think it's, it's, it's also a relatively specialist community of viewers. So I think, you know, like how many people would see 10 skies without really having a sense of what Benning is all about, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky question too, because I, I I never want to be in the position of saying that the film or other, or other experimental films need to be explained Mm -hmm. uh, or, or need to be glossed. Um, I mean, I think it it's, can be part of the experience, but that's also something it's something in, in me, uh, you know, innately resists, I think, because I always love to think of movies as the more democratic uh, art form among visual arts, although I guess galleries can be free. Galleries can be free, but I think that there is, I mean, one of the things that I've worked a lot on in my more scholarly work is, I guess, the relationship between the experimental film tradition as it exists, like for the cinema and distributed through like the film co-ops on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the tradition of artists film and video art that is more gallery based. And I think that, you know, there is a real distinction to be made there. There are in-betweens, but nonetheless, I think we can make a kind of distinction between um, experimental film as depending less on contextual information. Despite what I just said about program notes and so on, there is a sense that, you know, what you need to see is going to show up on screen. And that is what matters. Whereas I think in artist film, it's very, very common that the film is actually a kind of supplement to something else, you know, to a performance, to a discourse. And maybe you need this like long wall text to even tell you, you know, what it is that you're, you're looking at. Whereas I don't think that that happens in the cinema so much, you know, you come and you sit down Mm. and you expect that everything you need to sort of have the experience is going to be there on screen from start to finish. And that's not true in artist film, I would say, or at least not in some of it. People will probably be angry that I'm like mischaracterizing, you know, these, these spheres. I understand that there are many points on the spectrum in between, but I think as like two poles that claim kind of holds, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's a particular case for, for bending it in a way, I think, because one of the things I thought was was neat was also his teaching practice. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's, he still does this, but if I remember correctly, he would have some sort of course or seminar that was about looking and listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in, in a way it's, it's, it's kind of um, exercising, you know, one's, one's, one's abilities and one's knack for just being attentive to the environment, uh, which is part of the process, obviously, of, of filmmaking and choosing sites or uh, responding to what's in front of you. Uh, so, in a way, that's that's one way where the I don't know the the, the process feels very organically part of his practice, uh, and and then choosing that site and 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 what story goes along with the images you're cap- capturing. I, but then, on the other hand, you also have shots in in the series of this film that uh you you have this great phrase for describing uh the world without us Mm. 
and you know some of the shots in the movie that's really what it feels like you're you're watching you know what for for a, for a, a lot of movie viewers is a pretty novel thing which is just a, an image that feels completely uh absent of, of any human uh presence even though i'm sure there's 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 stories about the off-screen space that i that i, I don't know yeah it's funny like benning i think his films are very tied to his own biography you know, if you look at his films, you can really trace all of his obsessions and interests and certain places and experiences. But he is definitely a filmmaker who at the same time is allergic to subjective expressivity, you know, so the camera never moves, he will, you know, create systems of rules that he'll use to structure his films. Um, he copies a lot, you know, so um, he more recently has been making paintings where he copies the work of certain sort of self-taught artists that he really admires. He's made copies of the Unabomber's cabin, of Thoreau's cabin, you know, and so there's this sort of scrubbing away of any kind of subjective expressivity that that comes through in his work. Um and it's something that I find so interesting in its coexistence with this like deeply personal practice. Yeah. And this film kind of has, you know, it's, it's again, maybe less obvious, but it, it has that combination. I, maybe, maybe I'm predisposed to, to uh, that, that kind of work. I mean, another couple of uh, artists or artworks that came to mind uh, thinking about 10 skies again were uh, Peter Hutton's mm -hmm. um, films of upstate New York. The ones that they basically look like, pencil drawings kind of shaded in pencil drawings of the landscapes um they're totally gorgeous and they kind of reminded me of this a little even though in many ways that's yeah different different style um that one and then maybe this was is too much of a cliche but uh james terrell's meeting just a mm -hmm. different type of work yeah terrell doesn't appear in the book and that surprises me because I always kind of assumed that of course I would have to say something about Tyrell you know as probably like the other contemporary artist of I guess more or less the same generation who you know has done so much um with the sky and in some really amazing ways uh and so it, it was always my intention and then I just couldn't find a place where it seemed like it made sense and I also sort of felt like I knew somehow it would come off as like me maybe putting down Terrell which I didn't quite want to do but um I do think that there's often a kind of like gimmicky thing that happens in some of his work um, that, you know, Benning is really not doing. And so I just decided that I would leave him out. But it's, this, I mean, it's, it's a super important, I think, comparative reference point for understanding, you know, why, why Ten Skies is as it is, you know, also, what is the meaningfulness, what is the meaningfulness, the significance of the fact that we are not looking at the sky, we are looking at a film of the sky, you know? And that I think is a huge, huge difference compared to if we think of, you know, Terrell and his sky pieces where you're being asked to see the sky through some kind of architectural frame, but it remains the real sky. Whereas for Benning, it's very crucially not the real sky. It is an image of the sky. Yes, <laughs> crucial, <laughs> crucial distinction, yeah. I mean, that sounds so obvious. You know, it sounds so banal to say, but actually, if you think through the ramifications of that, I think it's, like, enormous. Yeah, that's where it's interesting to think of, of them as found paintings, like, versus, I don't know, found, I don't know, found portals <laughs> or something mm -hmm. like exactly. that. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, we, we kind of flagged this earlier, but another aspect, um, I mean, speaking of these being films, uh, is the sound. Mm. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk a bit about the sound design um, and some of the specific things that he 
kind of secrets away in the soundtrack. Again, again, fascinating to me because, I mean, there are a couple of things that you explained, you know, I think I just thought were, this sounds terrible, background noise, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) obviously it's all chosen and selected. And that's another fascinating thing he does. I mean, I'm more familiar with the sounds in in 13 likes, like gunshots and whatnot. Um, But could you talk a bit about the sound in, in 10 Skies? Yeah, so a, a few published accounts of the film from around the time it came out, you know, says, oh, yeah, it's like sync sound film. And it's not. Other published accounts from when the film came out mention that, in fact, all of the sound is um, recorded asynchronously. So some of it Benning had used in previous films that he would made that he had made. Um, other sounds, you know, he recorded for this, but at a time that was different from when he shot the image. And, you know, you can kind of question, okay, well, why is that the case? And one reason I think is that it was actually very difficult for him to find 10 skies that he actually thought were worth filming and worth using. And so then to also have really interesting soundtracks, I mean, essentially it would be impossible to, you know, make the film. He talked about this as being a film that was extremely difficult for him to make. And again, I think that gets back to this question about like the picture versus the portal, you know, or the representation versus the sky sky itself um, and the craftedness of this film. So um, all of the soundscapes are completely artificial that he has assembled and then paired with the images And for instance, you know, there are gunshots that uh, you hear in 13 Lakes. And at least for me in 13 Lakes, like they don't sound so terrible. I mean, it's a gunshot, so there is a kind of violence there, but, you know, it happens and it just, it almost seems like ambient noise within this kind of lakeside setting. But in 10 Skies, he uses them repeatedly. So the gunshots just like keep going off Um, and it becomes very, very sinister. And of course, like you can't see what is happening out of frame. So there's this sort of absolute blind field and you're just left to imagine, you know, what kind of horror might be happening out of the frame while you stare at the sky. And so, you know, that in a way is a moment when the film is playing with a principle of cinematic construction that is super integral to like the horror film, to the operation of suspense. I mean that, you know, like Pascal Blanitzer has written what I think is like the most amazing essay on this question of the function of the blind field out of the frame and the kind of threat of the blind field. And in that part of 10 skies, I think we find like a really amazing uh, reflection on on that in-frame, out-of-frame sound image uh, relation. And there are, you know, some other um, places where Benning said, you know, he was like having some fun in the background by making these Mm -hmm. sort of unusual sound image matches. But I think, you know, in in most cases, these would not be apparent to the viewer without knowing. Whereas the, the reuse of the gunshots from 13 Lakes is a moment where, in fact, like a Benning fanatic really might be able to pick up on the fact that this is that this is reused sound. But I think that, you know, concentrating on the sound in this film is really important because it shows how the film is really interested in kind of like world making and like crafting each sky as like an imaginative space for the viewer to inhabit. But it also gets to this question about constructedness and the craftedness of this film um, so that we're not seeing just you know, 10 random shots of the sky, like some filmmaker woke up every morning and shot the sky. It's not that. And the sound is one of the places where I think we see, or we rather hear, we we apprehend that, um, you know, that question of constructedness is really crucial. A, a couple of things come, come to mind with, with, with what, you, what you're saying. I mean, I mean, one is the gunshot. It's, it's also the idea of an event in, in, mm-hmm. in movies, you know, a gunshot. I mean, something's happening if it's in, in many movies and, and here he, he can play with that and kind of 
maybe even create a little suspense, but also undercut it because you're on to the next sky at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so that's interesting because it, it kind of brings the film uh, a little bit overlapping with movies that are looking at routine. You know, you think of, uh, you know, John, John Dielman being a very obvious example, but like where if someone drops a spatula or something, that's drama. Huge uh, in, event. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's also interesting to think about. Um, I want to get to, you have a great passage where you place the movie in the context of world events uh, as well. Mm. And that, I think that's great because I think a lot of writing about movies, um, sometimes I think of it as the like IMDBification of, of, uh, of criticism, which is that we kind of say, okay, I'm going to write about five movies from 2004 without regard to what's happening in 2004, or maybe a very, uh, you know, single track view of what's happening in 2004, or maybe these are movies that did not even exist in the same space in 2004, mm-hmm. uh, because people don't always check whether it's like a festival date or main release date. And that goes for movies from the from all of cinema. You can find all sorts of miscues uh, in, in terms of that. But uh, uh, that is really just because 2004, uh, we can cast our eyes, cast our minds back to another you know, feels like the end of the, the world moment uh, in terms of our principles of civilization or, or, or culture. Uh, you talk about Abu, Abu Ghraib. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a bit about how that figured into things? And, and then maybe we also can uh, situate the movie a little bit into that time period, which is kind of interesting. And I think it came, these movies, this movie and, and 13 Lakes kind of came uh, at like a very, like the perfect moment in terms of um, the, broader trends of that you also talk about between so-called slow cinema and um, so-called mainstream. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the book series that this book is a part of uh, looks at the first decade of the 21st century and has one book per year. And so when I was thinking about what film to choose, I definitely was also thinking about, you know, where would that film sit within this decade, uh, you know, in terms of bigger discourses in film, but also the world. And I think like at first glance, you might think, okay, well, 10 Skies, it has nothing to do with anything except itself. But in fact, you're exactly right. I think that, you know, this is a film that asks us to think about the end of photochemical film, um, or at least an end of photochemical film, um, the sort of obsession with slowness. And then um, the film premiered in in November 2004. And this was the same year that the Abu Ghraib photos came out, but also uh, a year of um, a lot of drone warfare. Um, and, and Benning himself said that the film was an anti-war film. And so when I read that, I think my jaw just like fell on the ground because it's such a wild statement to make about this film, I think. Yeah. And (laughs) I mean, really, you know, but it's like, it's fascinating and it's a, it's a huge provocation. And I think, you know, I always tell my students like, don't take filmmakers at their word just because they say it doesn't mean it means that it's the truth of their film and, you know, and so on. But I do think, you know, we should listen to filmmakers and kind of weigh out what they have to say about their own work. And so in this case, I thought, okay, well, one of the chapters will be me trying to kind of speculate a little bit around what this anti-war comment could mean. And so I started to think about uh, Abu Ghraib and the circulation of those photographs at that time and um, what it would be to produce a kind of counter image of war. And then I also started to think that this is a film that comprises 10 shots that are all views from below. And I mean, I think we hear a lot about the view from above, and that has been extensively theorized. There have been, you know, amazing exhibitions about the view from above, um, books written about the view from above. But I thought, well, but what about the view from below? It's actually super rare. And, and to structure a whole film around that, 
you know? And so then I started thinking about 10 skies as the inversion of the view from above, which is, you know, the view of the drone associated with a kind of literal violence, but also a kind of epistemological violence by which I mean this detached so-called objective viewpoint that is not embedded in worldly reality in any way. And so I, um, I thought, wow, like maybe, maybe all of this is, is a way of considering this an anti-war film. And I know that a lot of it, or maybe most of it is not in any way, but what Benning meant when he said that, you know, but I don't really care. And I don't think he does either. You know, I mean, he's very happy to sort of like, he makes the films and puts them in the world. And then, you know, they do what they do. Maybe some filmmaker will make a, a view from below series or a series of films because it, <laughs> the nature of, of film is to give you a more and more expansive or spectacular view somehow. So flipping things like that is really interesting. Mm. Um, um, just about Benning, I just wanted to, I mean, this is probably late in the game for me to be saying, but yeah, as you've, as you've noted, it's important to say that, you know, Benning has a sense of humor that these aren't. He's uh, hilarious. And that yeah. is something that I think a lot of people don't realize. I mean, he's act not, I don't, I don't mean just as a person, but as a filmmaker, like, I mean, there's a lot of humor built into his work. And I think that, you know, there's this kind of stereotype in general that, you know, avant-garde cinema is so serious and so on. But, you know, here and there, people have done great programs and written some articles, you know, on humor and avant-garde film. And I really, I sometimes joke with people that I hate comedy because I hate, like, being made to feel like I need to laugh. <laughs> and so this sort of like very dry <laughs> humor that you sometimes find in experimental film and in Benning in particular, it totally gets me, you know, I love it. Yeah. It, yeah, it is. It is a dry sense, sense of humor and I, I guess a little bit absurdity and, and, mm-hmm. and dead, deadpan. Um, and then sometimes I just don't know what exactly the thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, that I would classify one of his, personal installation project as, as I don't know exactly what to think, which is that he built replicas of the Walden Thoreau cabin. Um, and then also of the Ted Kaczynski cabin, yes. which in turn was, I think, based or proportionately or something on the Walden cabin. Yes. Um, so that's something he just did, I think on his own, land although yes. I think they, they were disassembled and displayed at some point I, I have no idea I think there are replicas that were displayed in a gallery setting but he did build um also yeah the, the copies of those cabins on his own land um near Pine Flat and I mean it's funny but I actually find that project the two cabins project to be so conceptually so 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 fascinating and also very kind of um tied to 10 skies in terms of these questions of what it means to be independent what it means to be alone what it means to reject um the modern world in some sense or the encroachments of kind of a technologized industrialized society um, I mean, Benning is very, very interested in in Ted Kaczynski, and that kind of connection to me is endlessly fascinating. In some ways, one might say that's the that's like the riskiest part of of, mm. of his, his work in, in a way. Um, although, I mean, there is always uh, there is also just the radical criticism that's that's in his work. Uh, I mean, even in something like. Uh, as, as you said, in, in Ten Skies, but also in Railroad. I, I'm, I'm drawing on the, this couple of interviews I did with him back then. I remember, I can, I will never forget him describing Railroad because I looked at it and saw Railroad is, is another serial work and it's a series of trains in different locales uh, making their way through different landscapes. Uh, each shot is the duration uh, it takes for the train to enter the screen and, uh, you know, exit. And... Uh, he explained it as partly as, you know, it's what it's showing is, is the weight of capitalism yeah. <laughs> in a way. Um, and that's, yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, like, I think he uh, has made many works about 
kind of pathological masculinity, about whiteness, about climate, about, you know, land use, about um, border and migration politics. I mean, all of this is in his work and has been like for a very, very long time. And so I think it's a complete misapprehension to be like, oh, he's our formalist master. Let's just, you know, marvel at the amazing rigor of his films. I mean, yes, they are amazingly rigorous, like incredibly precise in their use of form and so on. But there's also really this, you know, decades long project that to me is one of the most interesting kind of diagnoses of um, American culture and history that we have uh, in recent cinema. And sometimes things also just, it's sort of for me an, a little bit of an open question about whether he intends it as part of, as an echo or not. But, you know, we were talking about the billowing smoke, the, the second mm. shot. When I saw that, you know, it was it was still just a few years from September 11th. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, uh, at the time, definitely, it echoed the, you know, endless live video of, uh, well, not, unfortunately, not endless, of smoke billowing from the Twin Towers. For um, sure. Something, you know, and it's crazy that that could somehow, the vocabulary of that image could be owned by an event like that, but it was, yeah, a horrific <laughs> event. Um, mm-hmm. But just the, the smoke billowing and going to sort of, you know, to the top right of the screen or to the corner of the screen somewhere. So, you know, sometimes it can just sort of trigger associations, you know, and even you might project things. That's the sky. The nature of it is that you'll you'll be projecting also things Absolutely. on it. Um, so that's another way. It's sort of open. Um, so I don't know. I, I just find this uh, a really open uh, text in, in many ways. And in some ways very traditional like uh, I mean not an exact fit but you know like something like um, you know Monet's Rouen Cathedral sort of Mm -hmm. um, studies Um, although these are different spaces it's not the same space but it is at different um, it is of the sky at different times of day and that sort of thing Uh, but also yeah everything you've been you've been talking about one last thing I wanted to talk about if if we could this came up a little bit uh, in, in in the writing but just the idea of like what is the what is what is modern life? What is the modern pace? Nick, um, <laughs> how am I supposed to answer that? <laughs> that so far so far that's a rhetorical question. So I'll, I'll make the actual question a bit more bounded. Um, okay, but <laughs> what is life? Um, no, but. I, there, there was one thing that for some reason really bugged me uh, from uh, a, a critic that you, you quoted uh, that said that, I think it was Ten Skies, Ten Skies is a is, is sort of a work that exists in, in denial uh, mm. of, of modern life because it, it resists, it doesn't acknowledge that all the changes in the pace of life, or I'm, I'm really bastardizing what, what it's saying, but that was yeah. really frustrating to me because I felt like that was a, a, a provincial viewpoint, if that makes sense. Well, so I will give one small clarification, which is that that comment was not directed specifically at Ten Skies. It was directed at all slow films in general, whether that makes it better or worse. I'm <laughs> not sure, but it was a kind of um, criticism of, of so-called slow cinema more generally. And, you know, I understand that, especially in the last, like, whatever, 20 years, it can be frustrating at how often slowness has been taken to be a kind of like default excellent thing and a kind of you know international (laughs) festival style as if just by virtue of being slow it's somehow interesting or compelling or something like that and of course there are tons of films that are slow that are terrible films and just like you know there's nothing inherently good about a slow film but um I was interested I guess in making the case for the need to carve out, you know, some kind of relationship to time and to perception, attention um, that is that is different 
from the one that we normally inhabit, you know, in front of small screens and rushing around and and so on and so on. And I think I think like a book like Jonathan Crary's 24/7 got so much attention and I think if you look at a book like that, you see that the screen is always pointed to as the great villain of, you know, like the 24/7 economy runs through screens and our attention is, you know, being destroyed by our relationship to the screen. But I really believe that, in fact, like because of that and in spite of that, the screen, the large screen especially, can be a place where we can have a different kind of relationship to time and attention. And Ten Skies is a film that I think does that like very, very powerfully. So I'm sure, you know, somebody on the Internet is going to say I'm nostalgic, romantic, conservative, regressive or whatever. Many other things I've been called for kind of having this position. Um, But whatever. I believe it. So there. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Good, bold, bold stand. I think I share as well. This is this podcast is is a safe space for the. Uh, multiplicity of uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also love Southland Tales and Gamer. You know, yeah. it's like which I mentioned in the book. Just you know, to to pick those two examples, it's like you know, we don't have to prescribe just like one kind of cinema as the way cinema should be. Um, right. You know, we can we can like lots of different kinds of contradictory things. They all have a place and they all do something for us. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it was about about that about that line. Uh, it was, it felt like bad futurism or something. Mm. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, and again, I, I'm, I'm sure that the argument is, is elaborated upon. Um, uh, but, so yeah, that was that's some, that's another thing that's kind of was interesting about Ten Skies is just, I don't know, it made me think about viewpoint and rural versus urban. You know, what assumptions we come to things with. Um, mm. Is that birds I hear? I have headphones on, so I can't hear them, but it's very possible. There are a lot of um, birds in my kind of like back garden area. Okay. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to take that as like a, a cue, you know, like when they, the orchestra starts playing. Sure. Um, <laughs> so we've covered this from, we've talked about 10 skies and scenes spending from many different angles. And I still think it's just a portion of what's in the book. So I encourage everyone to read Erica's book. But uh, I don't think our episode would be complete if we didn't talk just a little about uh, what you've been watching recently. What's what's the what's the last movie you saw? Uh, the last movie I saw is Her Man by Tay Garnett, uh, which I gather was like playing maybe somewhere in the U.S. And so I saw a few people mentioning it online and then it happened to pop up on uh, La Loupe in a pretty good file. So I downloaded it. I had never seen it before. Um, and it's totally delightful and really like demolishes every cliche that exists about the clunkiness of early sound films. Uh, it has this like amazing kind of roving camera, some really good fight scenes. Um, mm. It was it was great. Yes, that's a movie I haven't seen in a long time. But I think the occasion here is uh, MoMA, I think, was was showing it, uh, giving it a week or so. And I guess the other thing, which is not the last thing I saw, but which is something I watched um, again recently to write a short piece about that I would totally plug is um, Claudia von Alemann's uh, Die Reise nach Lyon, which is in English released as Blind Spot. I don't know why it has that title in English, but um, it's from the early 80s. And it's a film I just don't know why it's not much, much better known because it has like all of the elements to be a kind of like great feminist classic. It's a, it's a fiction feature, but it's about um, a young woman who is uh, used to be a historian, a former historian who abruptly leaves her husband and child in Germany and travels to Lyon uh, to look for Flora Tristan, who was the sort of feminist socialist Uh, in the mid 19th century. And it kind of has like a bit of an Ackerman vibe, a bit of a Marguerite Duras kind of vibe. Mm. Um, But it's this like amazing film, very like moody city film shot in like the heat of summer. 
about kind of different ways of writing history and like how, you know, what is a feminist relationship to the feminist past? Uh, it's really, really great. That sounds terrific. Uh, so that's Blind Spot, and then uh, before that was Her Man. Uh, wait, where did you where did you watch it? Blind Spot. Uh, on a file. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've only been to the cinema once since um, September, and that was, I guess, two weeks ago um, at the BFI. They're doing a Robert Altman season at the moment, and I went to see that cold day in the park, which I had never seen before. And especially, you know, it shot it shot in Vancouver. And as a Canadian, I was so fascinated by this. Like, what what is going on? You know, like mm. what what? And I think there is something kind of interesting about the Canadianness of the film uh, as it dramatizes kind of being caught between the old and the new and like the kind of looming Vietnam War in the film and this kind of like struggle, generational struggle or or something. But um, Sandy Dennis is like really super amazing in it. And yeah, I mean, it was like my first time also seeing something on 35 in ages and uh the cinema the cinematography in this film is like it's laszlo kovach it's super like weird and assertive um throughout the film i mean in a great way uh and like the film itself it's like it's fine it wasn't like i thought it was the most amazing film of all time but i just was completely overwhelmed by like the perceptual experience of like being there in nft1 and like and and seeing this it was amazing that sounds wonderful i think i saw that one um ifc center like Mm. when they did some i guess they still do little mini retros um but that that was one thing that maybe we didn't talk about with uh 10 skies i won't launch a whole new topic here but just to say that i mean when i reviewed it uh, as in just, you know, looked it over again for, for the podcast, I watched it online, uh, on, on a Vimeo. I got access to it, a larger screen, uh, in the hopes of getting a little closer to what I remembered of it. And, um, I mean, it, it, it's good. I'll say that it's good that I saw it originally on, on 16 <laughs> projected on, off 16 millimeter, uh, because it was so so uh, flat mm. um, and the, the color range felt constrained and there wasn't depth. All of these things that people talk about, this movie is one like sort of litmus test for whether if you think you don't care about the, about <laughs> the, dif- the difference in quality, I don't mean like good or bad, but literally just the qualities of film versus digital. This is a great movie for, for feeling that. For sure. Like I am not a kind of celluloid fanatic or anything like that, but I, but I do really think that there are certain films where it really makes a a difference. And this is absolutely one of them. Um, And it's very rare to be able to see it on, on 16, but there are a bunch of screenings now coming up this summer in a couple cities at least. Um, so it's it's exciting because I haven't seen it on 16 in ages. I wrote the book by, you know, looking at the YouTube file. So uh, it should be quite interesting. I might I might weep, I think, when I <laughs> when I actually see it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when people are, are writing these rapturous treatises about the first time they saw this or that painting, you know, this is this is this movie has that. I guess you, I think you use this sublime. I mean, it has mm, that quality. Definitely. Bowling you over. Um, but yes, you, you mentioned there'll be screenings coming up. So I know one of them is uh, Light Industry. It's, yeah, it's July 1st. And then was there another screening? I believe in Berlin outdoors. Oh. Um, yes, um, in August and then in London in September. So all you have to do is go to New York or London <laughs> and see these, or or, or YouTube, a, or YouTube. Yeah, what was that? I don't know if it still is in wide use, but there was the crowdfunding individual screenings. Wasn't there like a little startup? Oh yeah, Someone yeah. 
people should do that little little bending screenings. Um, and then I guess actually that's just as a side note, I guess that was maybe one part of the reason why, part of the thinking about why he was sort of okay uh, earlier than he might be about digital was, as I recall, it was just getting the 60 millimeter prints back and not always in great shape and I think he got impatient with that or something. Exactly, um, yeah. But anyway, I think that's what brings us to brings us to the end of our ten skies bending landscape everything uh, conversation. Um, I had this kind of idea, which is we should live tweet ten skies. Um, and, oh, uh, <laughs> um, oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never tweeted. I've never tweeted, so uh, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna start for this. No. I'm sure. I'm sure it was kind of that was kind of my Benning-esque, uh, a very dry joke. Um, <laughs> thank you, Erica, so much for for um, indulging me. I, 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 I'm sorry if I uh, went on a bit. This is for some reason a movie that just opens up um, a lot of different ideas. So I think I probably talked a bit more than I intended. No, but... no, totally my pleasure. It was very fun. Okay. And everyone can find the book, the Fireflies Press site and... Thanks again. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 